Put your grinders down and turn your radio up. This is the Vermont to Wanna Podcast. Hey, it's Melissa Etheridge, and I've been talking to Vermont to Wanna. Lighting up the airwaves. And now, here's your host, rolling it up nice and tight, Eli Harrington. All right, welcome everybody to the Vermontawana podcast, Elevate the State, episode five. I am your host, Eli Harrington, and this episode is brought to you by Hedy Vermont, www.hedyvermont.com your go-to resource for all the latest and greatest in cannabis updates in Vermont and beyond. Uh, There's some great stories on there. We'll talk about them a little bit, but definitely check out HeddyVermont.com. So, episode five, we have got a very special episode today. It is an extended interview from about a week ago that I had with Dr. Joe McSherry, a neurologist and associate professor at the UVM College of Medicine. Dr. McSherry has been an outspoken advocate for cannabis uh, for cannabis, and a researcher since at least the late 90s. Uh, as you'll hear in the interview, we talk a lot about kind of his background, how he came to understand it as a physician, and a lot about kind of why the medical community is still sort of skittish. Um, about medical marijuana, even though there's been a lot more research done and there's a lot of anecdotal evidence coming out of various states, coming from patients and coming from advocacy groups. We definitely got into that, and uh, I really want to thank Dr. McSherry. He is a, he's a great man. He's done a lot to help a lot of medical patients in the state of Vermont. And as someone who puts his name out there publicly, he does not represent the UVM College of Medicine. He is speaking as an individual. These are his own opinions that you will hear. Uh, but Dr. McSherry, a, uh, a great guy, very, very knowledgeable, and excellent to have a medical professional who's willing to get out there and, and talk about this and with some common sense, with some experience, and, uh, and with a lot of research behind him. So uh, you'll hear that coming up shortly, the Dr. McSherry interview. One of the big things and one of the titles, and maybe why you clicked on this, uh, on this link that we talked about is, how do you talk to your doctor about medical marijuana? If you're somebody, I'll be honest, it's one of the most frequent questions that I'm asked is how do I get a card, um, how do I talk to my doctor about it, and, uh, and probably can you get me any <laughs> in, those, in, the, in that order. Um, the answer to the latter is always no, so please stop asking me. We're on a website here. This is, a, this is actually an official business. So no, I cannot ever hook you up. But as to the first question, how do I talk to my doctor um, or a medical professional about medical marijuana? Well, obviously this varies state to state. So we're going to talk about Vermont because this is the Vermont Wanna podcast. Uh, but there are great resources out there in every state. Uh, there are a lot of websites. Some of them are good. Some of them are great. Some of them are very mediocre. But um, usually there's a state agency involved. So get on the Googler. If you're not in Vermont, figure out what's going on in your state. Um, you can always email me and we'll try to do our best to connect you up. But we're going to talk about as part of that conversation, how the Vermont Medical Program works. And the first thing that you need to know, I'll give a little spoiler to the interview, is that the way the Vermont medical system works for the Vermont Marijuana Registry is that doctors do not prescribe marijuana, they do not recommend marijuana, they do not attest to the medicinal value of marijuana. This is a big, big deal, and this language matters. Instead, the state has decided that there are certain conditions that people may have which can qualify them. So when you go talk to your doctor, you're not asking your doctor to recommend it. Your doctor might not even support it, as Dr. McSherry and I talk about, and you probably aren't going to change uh, his or her mind, unfortunately, because a lot of these, he calls them, sometimes they have calcified brains. Um, But for a lot of reasons, it's important when you talk to your doctor that you understand in Vermont, medical professionals do not recommend them, they do not prescribe them. They say, yes, you have a qualifying condition. If you go over to HeddyVermont.com medical, you can read what those qualifying conditions are. One of the most important updates in 2016 was that chronic pain is now a qualifying condition. Previously, it was severe pain. 
one thing that a lot of medical advocates and people in the know will tell you is that medical marijuana is not for acute pain. You know, so severe pain was kind of tough. It left a lot of people out. Chronic pain really is going to allow a lot of people to be involved. So you'll hear the rest of the interview. Thank you again to, uh, to Dr. McSherry. And thank you to Mark Tucci, as always, the godfather. Um, really the guy who helped build the foundation in this state um, and who's still around and kicking, damn it. So Tucci, love you, man. Thanks for a great party last weekend. And um, check out The Patient's Simple Guide. I think it might still be online. That's a book by Mark Tucci about how to grow medical marijuana for patients. Before it was written by Dr. McSherry. So you can check that out. Um, so before we get into the interview with Dr. McSherry, I want to talk about a few things. One, we're going to start putting out some video. So by the time you hear this, there might be a video on the website on HeddyVermont.com and on our Facebook page. So check that out. Um, I'm really nothing to look at, you know, so, uh, but we've got some good information and basically it's time to step up and, uh, and get more, get more media out there. People don't always have time or, or don't always get the links, although you should be on our newsletter as well. There'll be one coming out on Sunday. Uh, so video is a lot, is a, is a good way for people to catch up on what's going on. So we're going to be doing more with that. Encourage you to check that out. Uh, I want to give a little bit of a, an update to, again, HeddyVermont.com is the best place to get all this info. And I should mention, we are looking for contributors. We've got a couple. We've got some great freelance writers and some experienced journalists who are, uh, who are applying and who we're talking to. And we hope to continue to speak with them and, uh, and talk to more people. We are paying. We're paying writers. So if you're somebody with some background in journalism, um, background in, in writing, you've got an interest in the topic, uh, there's a lot of different ways that we can work with you, but you know, we're expanding, we're building it out, there's a lot of interest, it's only growing, no pun intended, um, we got a lot going on. So we'll also be putting out some video from the Boston Freedom Rally, which is this upcoming weekend, September 17th and 18th. So if you're listening to this in the New England area or even beyond, I know people are coming from as far away as Jamaica to this event. It is the biggest meetup you'll see in New England. It's on the Boston Common. It's a great reason to go to Boston, a beautiful time of year. The Sox are still in it right now, doing well. So um, come out to that. And if you do, look for us. We might even have a flag. Flying the Heady Vermont flag, literally, not just metaphorically. So um, if you're around Boston, and even if you're not, get down to Boston. Come say what's up. But as far as what's going on here in Vermont, check out HeddyVermont.com. One of the things you'll see, we just did a, uh, a legalization update. So today while I'm recording this is Friday, September 9th, and marijuana is still not legal in the United States, and it is still not legal in Vermont. Um, in case you didn't know, spoiler alert, sorry. But we did put a, a VT Poly update, a Vermont politics update. There is a joint committee, hey made up of 10 legislators, five senators, five representatives, and they are going to meet six times in the next two months, and they're going to talk through a lot of the details and the policy sort of issues. Um, it's going to talk about driving, enforcement, I mean, basically the idea is get these lawmakers together now, get the leadership together, and uh, people who are the heads of committees and who are influential. Um, we do still have elections coming up in November, don't forget that. But in the meantime, we're going to get these people together, most of whom, to be honest, are probably going to get reelected. These guys are going to all hear the same testimony, these guys and ladies. That's just a, a phrase, excuse me. Um, these individuals are going to get together and hear the same testimony from the same uh, quote-unquote experts. Um, and, and a lot of them are, uh, some of them more so than others. But they're going to get together, they're all going to hear the same thing. And then by the time the session starts in January, ideally, there are kind of some parameters. Maybe there's a roadmap for how things go in the next year or two. Um, but at least there are some people who are informed, who can talk to other people in the, in the other representatives, um, other officials in the administration, other committee heads. Because as a reminder, in Vermont, it doesn't matter what the referendum says. There is no binding referendum in Vermont. That's part of the Constitution. So that's not going to change. People who want a referendum, we don't need it. We know from polling that, and common sense, and if you've ever, you know, spent like an hour here, that 
55 to 57 percent over the last three years have responded to the VPR poll they support legalization. We don't know. We don't need a referendum. We know that. And there's probably a lot more. That's just you know one poll, but it's consistent. If there was a referendum in Vermont, it would do nothing. It would limit the choices. The way referendums work is they put it together and they say yes or no. And sometimes it's a shit sandwich. And they say, would you like a shit sandwich or would you like no sandwich? And then people who support it fight amongst each other. And at the end of the day, we maybe end up eating a shit sandwich, but it doesn't matter because it still has to pass in the legislature and be signed into law. So legislature is what matters, people. On Hedy Vermont, we have a political map. It shows everybody who's running and it gives them either a red, a yellow, or a green indication as to how they support legalization. And if you're curious about your representative and you take the time to email me, I'll probably go dig through and do a little bit more research. But there's a lot of time that's gone into that. So there's no excuse for not knowing how your rep stands. And if they haven't told us and they're a white marker on that map, then guess what? Give them a call, give me a nudge, and we'll give them a call. We'll get them on the spot. It's an important issue coming into the election and everybody's got to know, I think, where uh, where the candidates stand. So uh, with that, let's give a shout out to Dave Zuckerman. He is the Democratic nominee for Lieutenant Governor. He's a longtime progressive. You can read about him on HeddyVermont.com and listen to the interview in the last Vermont Awana podcast. Um, really inspiring, interesting, experienced politician who has, has come up through the school of Bernie. Um, he won his primary in August, as we probably noted uh, after the last podcast dropped. But uh, he's running against Republican Randy Brock, who is very much not in favor of legalization. So if you're a, if you're a Vermont voter, you got a clear choice there. Also, before we get to the interview with Dr. McSherry, I want to talk about events. Sunday, Sunday, Sunday on September 11th, uh, otherwise known as 9/11, we are going to be hosting an event that's part. It's not part of the Burlington Art Hop. It's happening at the same time that the Art Hop's happening. Uh, our, our offices, both Monica's studio and, and my studio, are both in the south end on Flint Ave. And there's a ton of great artistic energy there. There's an amazing history of, that's where Seba's office used to be located, the South End Arts and Business Association. That's where Magic Hat got their start. You can still see their stuff on the wall. Um, we're right behind Switchback. So there's a lot of cool, creative, artistic energy down there. And we very much uh, got caught up in it and said, we should do something during the art hop. And thought, you know, Let's have, a, let's have a salon. Let's just open up the door and say anybody who wants to come through on Sunday, 9-11, between 10 and 4, 10 a.m. and 4 p.m., come down, check out BTV Flea, go into Vintage Inspired Antiques. They've got some really, really cool stuff in there, and they're great people. Check out the other artists who are in the building at 180 Flynn, right next to Vermont Hardware, and then pop into, uh, pop into the studio. Pop into the Hedy Vermont Cannabis Salon in the tradition of enlightenment era um, sort of gatherings people would get together this is how a lot of the revolutionary concepts came together and uh, democracies were were shaped and formed was discussions that people had about what look what uh, how, how laws and social norms are in the present what they could be in the future and ultimately how to organize and get things done so we're just gonna pop the doors open we will have light refreshments we will not have cannabis it's illegal unless you're a medical patient even if you are you can't smoke it in public and even if you are smoking it in public you can't smoke it inside in the salon so there will not be cannabis provided um, there will not be cannabis consumed please if you stop by be very conscious of our neighbors they are they're great people um, wonderful creative talented artists who uh, who are very nice to us and sometimes hear me talking to myself alone in the building because I am recording a podcast Fortunately, right now, I'm outside at a beautiful lake house. Thank you very much to Andrew. And actually, this episode, I don't know if you've heard, I have a co-host. Um, she's pretty quiet because she's a dog, mostly. But uh, yeah, this is the first co-hosted episode. So shout out to Barley, the Labrador, uh, the Black Lab Retriever. Top five dogs out there. Guarantee it. She's probably going to stay quiet forever, but um, she's in the mix, so... Thanks to Andrew, and uh, and again, remember, if you come through on Sunday and visit us over at 180 Flynn Ave, behind Switchback Brewery, uh, be conscious. It's Cannabis Salon. It's about discussions, connecting. We'll have some interactive art projects. We'll have some light refreshments and some munchies, but there will not be any cannabis, and uh, and we discourage you from, uh, from bringing it, from consuming it. 
on site and generally encourage you to follow the law because that's what we're all about, right? So with that said, Vermont Awana Podcast, Episode 5, Elevate the State. Thank you again to our audio engineer, Emart, who also wrote the uh, VT Wanna Feel You song that you heard in the background. Maybe that you still hear in the background, depending on how I edit this at the end. Shout out to Sauce Man, John the Sauce Man Saucier, who uh, recorded the intro and some of the voice drops. Also, Melissa Etheridge, I think it's coming up, uh, our one year anniversary since we interviewed each other is coming up. So, uh, Melissa, I hope you're doing well. I'm sure that you're listening to the podcast. I will certainly be bothering you on Twitter and reaching out to your manager again, because I'd love to do a follow-up, so we'll see you on a future episode. But uh, yeah, Vermont Awana Podcast, Episode 5, How to Talk to Your Doctor and How to Talk to a Doctor About Medical Marijuana, an extended interview featuring uh, a great guy, very knowledgeable, professional, um, MD, PhD, MD, neurologist. He's not practicing anymore, but literally this dude's a brain surgeon um, and associate professor. So... Dr. Joseph McSherry. Dr. McSherry, thank you again. Here's the interview. Elevate the state. Yeah. And do you think that's ultimately, I mean, that first time experience that that drives a lot of, that drives so many patients out? I, uh, probably not. Uh, certainly if people start out, have a bad trip because they ate stuff and they didn't know what they were doing for, uh, you know, three days after that, um, they might be really reluctant to get involved again, and that's why something like a vaporizer is, I think, the right way to get mm-hmm. involved. And I think Shane actually encapsulated it when he said, uh, you know, start low and, and go slow. Right, low and slow. And uh, originally, back in the 60s or whatever, people would complain that they didn't get high. And if you read Lester Grinspoon's book on uh, the rediscovery of cannabis as a medicine, uh, he talks about thinking it wasn't anything until one time when he realized it was something. Right. <laughs> <laughs> um, so that, uh, but that was, you know, it was nice, really low-grade cannabis, um, and that's why that was that way. And now there's better cannabis, and to me that's good because people will smoke less if they're going to smoke, and they shouldn't smoke at all. Because um, people do self-titrate when right. they inhale it and they should vaporize it. But, um, yeah, no, I, I, uh, we'll there, 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 what was done in Holland was they took, uh, you know, a couple, two, three hundred people and, uh, had them vaporize, uh, different sort of doses of THC and then before and after psychometric tests on how you feel, how anxious are you, uh, how sleepy or drowsy are you, how soaring are your thoughts. And they found clusters, uh, so that'll, uh, and they did three different doses of THC for each of these people. And they would find a lot of times people would report soaring uh, mental energy and all that kind of stuff. And about similar large number of uh, cannabis events uh, they would uh, feel muzzy and sleepy and drowsy or whatever. But about 25% of all trips, uh, people were unhappy, uh, you know, had dysphoric experiences. Mm. And I'm perfectly comfortable with the idea that a, a, you know, a quarter of the population isn't ever going to want to smoke cannabis or yeah. vaporize it or eat it. Unless they have some terrible condition, they find that it really helps a lot. But just in terms of recreational uh, use, I think that uh, people are uh, are different in that regard. And the people who uh, drink wine uh, right. do fine. I've mentioned that before. But uh, some people get migraine headaches from that, and they don't drink wine. Right, right, exactly. And yeah. Uh, so well, I wonder. You know, sometimes you hear that the endocannabinoid system that it's so subjective and so dependent on an individual that you almost wonder how much use it is to quantify and qualify these strains because if each individual is going to react differently then all that really matters is that individual sort of trial and error you know until something is really mapped out and we're able to you know fit the pieces of the puzzle together and say your cannabinoid system is this your preference is this so you should um, eat a sativa dominant something in this range yeah I think uh that in California and places like that where 
the doctors say, fine, you can you know, use it and I'll sign a recommendation. The patients find what they like mm-hmm. and, they, and they get it from a reasonably consistent vendor. Right. Um, I think that it ought to be regulated so that you know exactly what you're getting and preferably with all the terpenoids also because if you take the pharmacology course, some of those terpenoids are energizing and if you have an energizing uh, terpenoid and high THC, then that may be too much for people. Uh, on the other hand, if you have uh, something that's somewhat sedating in the way of the terpenoids, uh, that may give you a different kind of experience. So until you can map people's genomes and uh, or something like that, you're, you're not going to know exactly what's good for people. Right. But you certainly can, if you know what's in the uh, medication, if it's a medication, if, you're, if you have back, chronic back pain and, and you really enjoy sleeping at night uh, or prefer to sleep at night, something that takes care of the pain and also facilitates sleep is ideal. And you can get a good idea of what that's going to be, but it's not going to be just four varieties for all people right. with different ratios of CBD to THC, both of which are very important. But, um, and particularly a lot of back pain people who want to stay functional and working use a higher CBD right. sort of thing and, and uh, don't get high at all, you know, intoxicated or whatever from yeah. it at all. So, yeah, I, I, I think that quantification is really important. And yeah, well, like you said, at least that standardization where you know that what you're getting is what you're getting is what you're getting. If you get orange melon you know, from Burlington, it may not be the same as what you get in Brattleboro. Right, exactly. <laughs> yes, exactly, which is a huge, you know, a great argument for, for legalization and regulation. And you exactly. mentioned terpenes and terpenoids, which makes me think of how far we've come. I want to rewind a little bit and just kind of give people an idea of your, your medical background um, and how you as a physician, I mean, a doctor, you mentioned Dr. Grinspoon, who is certainly one of the pioneers and someone who took a lot of personal and professional risk and his exploration mm-hmm. was also part of a different time, I think, mm-hmm. you know, as well. Um, but kind of generally, your background in, in medicine and sort of how you came to open your mind up, whether it was through traditional or non-traditional channels, to the possibilities of medical cannabis. Well, I was uh, working in, at a, uh, when I went to medical school, I went to Baylor University College of Medicine, which then split off because uh, it was a Baptist university and they couldn't take government money for research, and you can't run a medical school without research. Mm-hmm. So it became Baylor College of Medicine, and they have a graduate program as well as, under, as, uh, as, well as their medical school. So I was in an MD-PhD program um, and studying neurophysiology for the PhD end of things and not necessarily planning to ever do neurology, um, but uh, after graduating from medical school, getting up toward 1971, 72, uh, I, I had never uh, heard of Woodstock until I saw the movie. <laughs> <laughs> but I did join Normal back in 1971 um, because politically a lot of things are going on at the time. Uh, the Controlled Substances Act was coming along but also we had a, uh, the federal government had a Blue Ribbon Commission made up of the, mm-hmm. uh, Mr. Schaefer, who'd been the governor of uh, uh, Pennsylvania, and he was a good Republican, and uh, Richard Nixon expected him to come out with the right kind of report, but they looked into what should be done about marijuana. And this was, you know, this followed, ever since it was quasi-prohibited or whatever, or the tax at a rate was prohibited, there have been study after study after study, and this was just the 1972 is when it came out. Um, and it was one that, uh, according to the tapes that Mr. Nixon collected, he told Mr. Schaefer, don't come out with the wrong answer, and Mr. Schaefer said, this is what it is. Right. And they recommended just legalize it because there's nothing to it. And Mr. Schaefer didn't get his judgeship, and the report was buried, but it's available. Right. I think recently there was a piece about Ehrlichman and and Nixon, the kind of intentional talking you know, about that our, our enemies are the are the blacks and the and the anti war people. Right. And uh, so all we have to do is declare war on heroin and uh, marijuana, and we can infiltrate them. Right. And uh, and in that political context, I don't think people realize today. You know, they think of people were were hippies or or not, and I don't think they realize sort of the impact of what Nixon and the kind of, there was a lot to be counter Nixon, 
you know, there was a wide range of people who were suspicious and who were nervous, I think, about Nixon, who weren't all necessarily long-haired hippies. No. You know, I mean, you're... you're Dwight you're, Eisenhower, for instance. Right, <laughs> right, yes, exa exactly, exactly. So it's an important context as you're in Texas in the early 70s, joining Normal. Yeah, and but uh, there was also research, uh, limited kind of research on cannabis, and uh, so I was curious, and uh, a friend kindly gave me a little matchbox that had some stuff in it, and uh, I smoked it, and uh, it, I got lovely eyelid movies, enjoyed the music, right. watching the <laughs> colors go by, and so I would have not shared a notion that it was uh, harmful, strange, weird stuff. Mm -hmm. um, I haven't had any of those kind of visual experiences again, but it's uh, something that I, I, uh, I followed very closely since then. And in uh, the 1979-1980 era, in uh, the country as a whole, the oncologists had realized that they had a lot of patients who seemed to have a better control of the nausea and vomiting with smoking cannabis than the drugs that were available at that time. And so they testified to the legislature, and I was feeling lazy. Uh, the Vermont Medical Society had a doctor of the day thing where you could go to the legislature, they'd sit you down in whatever committees are going on that day, and you could schedule that way ahead of time, mm -hmm. so you wouldn't have patients and things like that. And I thought taking a day off in the middle of the winter would be a fun thing to do. <laughs> sure. So I signed up for it and ended up being sat down in uh, Edgar LeMay's Senate Committee on, I presume, Health and Welfare or something, and they were considering a law which was proposed at that time uh, on legalizing cannabis for nausea and vomiting within the state and also uh, setting up a research program <clears throat> which uh, never got activated. Um, I was sitting there in the room and uh, Edgar LeMay said, uh, oh, we have a doctor here. What do you think of medical marijuana? And I said, as far as I know, it's okay, because um, I'd read the newspaper. Right. <laughs> yeah, <I see>. yeah. <laughs> so I was listed as testifying in favor of medical marijuana at that time. And in 19, the late 1990s, when people were beginning to warm up to do another effort at getting a medical marijuana bill in Vermont, they came across my name and contacted me and asked me if I would mm -hmm. testify. And I realized that uh, I'd better learn something about the topic before, right. <laughs> before I do that. If That's, you were going to be the doctor on record, you might as well uh, represent yourself accurately. If I, if I was yeah. really going to testify about it, I, yeah, I wanted something better than, well, yeah, I guess as far as I know, it's okay. <laughs> yeah, didn't bother me at all. So yeah, yeah. Uh, I, I um, started reading about it. And it just one of the nice things about working in academic medical centers, you have access to the university medical library and uh, online things are coming along then. And so mm -hmm. since then I've been collecting all the articles I can on, on cannabis and uh, knowing as much about it as possible. All right. So since then I've uh, followed um, the literature as it gets published uh, and um, there's been a lot, thousands yeah. of articles now. and. So I like to think I know a lot about it. Yeah. Well, there's there's a lot more a lot more to know. It seems, and you know that the internet has been a huge, very powerful force in that and sharing it. And, um, you know, but it seems like the medical establishment doesn't really want to talk about it. Maybe doesn't really want to talk about it publicly. And if you're a physician who's open to it, you might not recommend it. I've heard people tell stories where their doctors said, "Hey, have you thought about cannabis?" And someone who is not necessarily inclined. That seems like it's few and far between. It seems like most of the time it's it's a patient trying to it's a patient doing their own research. So, I wonder from the per, from the perspective of a medical professional, um, what is generally you know what are what are doctors' attitudes towards it? I mean, I, you're all very smart, very educated people. You know, it's less dangerous than a lot of things that are out there, probably, but. Maybe you don't talk about it at cocktail parties with each with each other, and you don't want to be known as as the pot doctor, right? Yeah, well, I, I'm sure that's true of some people. Um, I've thankfully not all. I, I have no problem being outrageous, and in <laughs> 2001, I uh, proposed to the medical society that they should uh, have two resolutions: uh, one uh, endorsing medical marijuana, which was not at that time 
allowed in Vermont, but might be for the legislature, and another one urging that they, we would uh, support as a public health issue to legalize marijuana. Mm. And uh, the medical society wasn't ready for those uh, at the time. Uh, they were willing to vote on the uh, medical one, and they tried to avoid a vote on the other one altogether, but uh, I prevailed, and they did vote, and uh, the people who were present uh, voted down, both of those, which didn't bother me at all. And I brought up a, uh, a resolution this year to do the same sort of thing for legalization, and they managed to derail the process uh, before any votes were taken. Is this because it's just kind of considered junk junk science? No. You know, is it a prohibition sort of yes. mindset? or Yes. Okay. <laughs> so it's just kind of an establishment view that this is bad, it's always been bad, and the more we talk about it, the less we're paying attention to more serious medical issues. Yes, and also doctors uh, study a lot, yeah. and they think they know a lot about what they know about. So that, uh, as an example, epilepsy, uh, which is a, a journal on epilepsy and treatments thereof and so on, had a poll, just people could online submit their uh, positions. and. They set up the scenario of you have a child who has intractable epilepsy and you've tried all your regular anticonvulsants and they're not working, would you consider uh, suggesting marijuana? And the poll results were kind of 90% of the general public, people who were not physicians, thought that, yeah, sure. Yeah. And 80% of general doctors thought, well, sure, why not? And 95% of epileptologists said no. <laughs> Because I think if you know everything there is to know about epilepsy and cannabis is not part of that, uh, and if you are afraid of recommending it because it, the person might have a bad response, they might have seizures, they might, uh, anything could happen, you don't know. Yeah. So you say no. And why, uh, well, with the oncologist also had a meeting, uh, Grand Rounds, where I got to see my colleagues because I went to it. And they had a presentation by the, uh, the Department of Public Safety, which manages the cannabis or marijuana for symptom relief program. And it was clear that the presenters from the Department of Public Safety knew a whole lot more <laughs> yeah. about medical cannabis than the oncologists, who, one of whom uh, famously said, uh, you know, if they want to smoke pot, they can uh, use Marinol, which Oral, pure THC uh, being one of the most difficult things to use is actually, when it was first allowed, was a Schedule Two, which is highly restricted. Mm -hmm. And it got moved down to Schedule Three because nobody really, some people use it. But yeah, it's used very, very, very few. It's very, very far few. from and being probably the... not for the excellent indications that it would be there for. But that's. Uh, the, the truth mm. about Marinol, uh, I, our former governor, Howard Dean, you may want to scratch this, but uh, <laughs> was interviewed by um, Peter Frayne. And uh, when uh, Peter Frayne, this was before his first medical, when governor was, uh, when Dean was governor, right. and they sort of torpedoed the medical discussion at that time. But uh, he had said the same sort of thing, you know, if they... You know, why they just use Marinol? And Peter Frayn said, well, well, they've got nausea and vomiting. They aren't going to be able to swallow a pill. And he says, well, they can use it as a suppository then. Which Literally shove it. <laughs> literally shove it. And Thanks, uh, Dr. Dean. Curiously, uh, it wouldn't work that way because uh, in order to get it absorbed through the bowel, you need to make a slightly different right. modification of the molecule. It can be absorbed through the bowel, but uh, his suggestion was medically incorrect. Uh, as well as being uh, totally uh, uh, boneheaded about the topic. Right. <laughs> so, yeah, the lots of doctors are uh, not educated on it, but have a lot of education about medicine, physiology, all the stuff that's been taught in medical school since 1941. Mm -hmm. And it hasn't been taught in medical school since 1941, so they really don't know anything about right. it. But they've Which will give a plug to UVM here, that the College of Medicine is actually offering a certificate course um, coming up, which is designed to actually put some academic rigor onto into the topic, and that there's actually a professional certificate which people will be able to have after completing this course. Yes, yeah, so well, last spring I was uh, excited to take 
the first course mm -hmm. that's been taught in a medical school, as far as I know, on the topic of cannabis and its yeah. pharmacology. And uh, I found out that there were things I didn't know. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Which was uh, enlightening and uh, delightful. Um, but, yeah, the, the, the people haven't been taught about it, so they don't know about it. Uh, mm -hmm. I was really lucky because I went to a school where I had a teacher who was an MD who did some research and so on. This is Baylor, Texas, right? There's not no, a Baylor. No, that Baylor in Texas was where I went to medical school. Okay, okay. Where I went and took my first biology course was in Massachusetts. Okay, okay. So I was, I was thinking, you know, liberal bastion of Texas, <laughs> of course. Well, um, this guy was educated from Brown, mm -hmm. and he taught us that uh, marijuana is... Uh, does something to your time sense and it's a mild hallucinogen. And that's what he had been taught because he was actually taught before it was banned. Oh, okay. Interesting. And totally different <laughs> yeah. from the notion that it makes hair grow in your palms and your brain dissolve. <laughs> and Jump out the window and, people, you know, yeah, absolutely. fraternize yeah, with... Not uh, to mention driving 80 miles an hour through Heinsberg and squashing people. Yes. Oh, yes, of course. Um, so I had a, a, a more neutral view on it from high school biology yeah. than other people would have. Um, and uh, I've... Uh, Which is wild that it took that someone with that had that long time perspective, you know, one of the older, you know, teachers and instructors who had that, was one of the few that had that base. Yeah. You know, he he wasn't that old when I yeah. was there. Yeah. <laughs> I'm old. <laughs> not, not that, you know, anyway, mindset, yeah. but, you know. Um, so, so people... So you had a more open mind, yeah. I, I, I tend to have an open mind. Um, I was stunned uh, 15, 20 years ago when somebody said, well, they probably all sought to legalize heroin uh, because that was, to me, totally absurd. But now we know, if you have an open mind, <laughs> that actually legalizing and dealing with that as a medical problem rather than as a criminal problem is a really good idea. Um, a lot happening in Portugal and a lot happening other in Portugal in and so on, and nothing mm -hmm. is happening in prisons in this country for people who are addicts when they go in, and when they come out, the right. best way to feel good is to have a little more opiate. Right. Well, now I guess we have we got a three million dollar grant last year, so we can give prisoners a uh, a new kind of pharmaceutical off roading treatment, which I think is the the completely wrong approach. But I want to talk about opi I want to talk about opioids in a future interview because yeah. that's a big, that's a huge topic and it's one that hits home yeah. around and here I'm, quite I'm a nowhere bit. near the specialist on opioids except some of the bad attributes of opioids mm -hmm. compared to cannabis. Right. Uh, in terms of uh, if you're going to have a, a problem and you take a medicine uh, and you can do it with uh, cannabis, that's a lot safer than opioids. So anyway, uh, no, I've always had a uh, open mind toward it, uh, sort of jarred open because I found that I had been responsible for testifying in favor of medical marijuana. <laughs> right. You really had no choice, really, yeah. And at that time, uh, yeah. as far as I know, there isn't much literature out there. Yeah. Um, there were some experiments done uh, by NIDA early on, and one of the most annoying things to me is that in 1976, they decided to try and prove that it made cancer go wild. And that's a really old study, and it got buried. Uh, it got buried because the cells that were cancerous all died and the normal cells did. Uh, with cannabidiol, with THC, and cannabinol. And so that wasn't what NIDA was looking for. Right. And that wouldn't have come up again except for the Spanish researcher in the late 1990s who was trying to figure out how to treat uh, glioblastoma, which has no good treatment. And uh, he remembered reading some article about that someplace, so he tried THC. And, and uh, since then, there's been a huge amount of research on cannabinoids and yeah. cancers. But uh, that was buried uh, for a long time. They also studied, uh, in the, again, in the 70s, just after NIDA was formed, basically, uh, tried giving rats and mice high doses of cannabis their whole lives. And uh, the rats that got the cannabis, or THC, um, it wasn't cannabis, it was THC, mm -hmm. uh, but they uh, ended up eating and moving around as much as the other rats did, but after two years, uh, they were leaner, and they had fewer tumors, and they lived longer. So that was another negative research project. Um, and since then, the researchers have gotten smarter, and I, I think tend to make their uh, conclusions in the abstract that they publish 
say, look, this does terrible things to your brain, your cognition. Mm -hmm. uh, if you're an adolescent, uh, all these bad things happen. And it's only when you dig through the data or wait for a study to try and reproduce that that you find out that it was all um, bad science. Yeah. Propaganda, basically. Right, right, exactly. Yeah, pro propaganda and that, you know, intentionally, intentionally misleading and, you know. And, and something that everybody can quote saying that this causes cognitive right. decline. Nobody is clever enough to be reading it. Uh, and, and nobody goes and reads the original study where it right. says 80% of the outcome are, is good. They just take that sound bite and the 20% is this and extrapolate, hey, it makes you lazy, it makes your IQ lower, you know, cannabis users are, are have a lesser IQ. You know, they one, make one less of, money. They... One of the fun ones was in the, uh, about 2003 uh, by Bola and others. But they uh, found they had to split their population by IQ into higher and lower if they were going to show how much damage smoking a little, a medium, or a large amount of cannabis caused in, in, pay, in people. These were people they had in, uh, in a hospital-locked ward for a month so. Mm -hmm. They knew that they weren't taking any cannabis there, and it turned out that uh, for the people with, uh, at the median and below, those who smoked the least had sort of the average scores on Stroop tests and other uh, tests of judgment and things, and those who smoked a uh, medium amount weren't quite as good, and those who smoked a lot were way down. So those were typical stoners. Um, but the other half of the graph was the people who smoked the least in the above average IQ had average uh, scores, and those who smoked more had a higher score, and those who smoked the most had the highest scores. So if you rotate it at 90 degrees, it looks like a bell curve where those in the middle smoke the least, and those at the extremes right. smoke the most. And that would be interesting, but uh, their conclusion was that it caused these poor kids to get stupid. Um, right who were in the lower IQ, and they just said the other guys have higher cognitive reserve. Well, if you have higher cognitive reserve and you smoke more, uh, then you should be on the chess team. And uh, if you don't smoke and you're on the chess team, maybe you should try harder. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> but if you're a football player, uh, it's very bad because it does slow your reaction times. So, yeah. And uh, so uh, testing for football players, it's a, it should be a no-no. Yeah. Which is interesting now because the NFL players are sort of, you know, there are a lot of them who are, who are leading this charge. You know, now guys who are recently retired and you hear the NFL might actually reconsider. Yeah, well, it totally is not, I mean... The, the Olympics, the, actually, they, the Olympics, you could test positive for cannabis and not be disqualified. Yeah. Which I think this was a first. And it makes sense because it's not a performance-enhancing drug. Right. It doesn't actually make you smarter. <laughs> right, right, right. It's not going to make your reaction time better. You're not going to be less prone to getting hurt and hit more home runs or, yeah. you know. But on the other hand, if you have a lot of pain from bashing around as a, as a football player or, or if you're getting traumatic brain injury, mm -hmm. uh, it's neuroprotective and it's a, uh, we haven't tried it in NFL players, but uh, certainly in mouse models and things like that. For strokes, for hypoxic ischemic events, uh, for status epilepticus, uh, the cannabinoids uh, activating that system is actually very helpful because it uh, reduces the damage mm -hmm. and also gets neurogenesis going for replacement neurons for those that have been destroyed. So I'm sure that if I was in the NFL, I would definitely, uh, not while you're playing. Uh, right. But uh, another sort of anecdote that you probably want to include, but uh, they used to have uh, the Harvard-Yale game published on the radio yeah. there in Houston so that the two clubs would get together and meet. And uh, I think it was 1969, but uh, Yale was doing really well. They were up a touchdown and a half or whatever, and there was only a minute and a half left in the game. But I think they all smoked a bunch of pot about that. <laughs> because in the last two minutes, uh, Harvard got two runs, <laughs> I mean, two touchdowns. and. Uh, um, so it was fun to go to the meeting with the Yaleys who already started drinking. I was going to say, yeah, I'm, I'm sure. I'm sure as a, as a Harvard guy, you get to stick it to him. Yeah, actually, my college baseball coach caught the two-point conversion that tied the game. Harvard wins 28-28. Shout out to Richard Varney, wow. my college baseball coach. Oh, wow. And, uh, That's awesome. Boston area legend, yes. He, uh, he still gets bought beers. Um, however, 40-some-odd 40, 40 years later. Yeah, oh, that's, uh, that's interesting. 
Anyway, um, that was a time when uh, athletes and things like that uh, in college were yeah. likely to do that. I graduated from college uh, in 1965, and as far as I know, there really was, uh, well, there was one guy in my class who alleged that he had uh, smoked cannabis, and I didn't know everybody in the class, so there may have been some others who had, but basically it was a class behind us that was the first wave of the cannabis. They were kind of the first, yeah. Cannabis users. And in the early 70s, uh, my wife was uh, back for um, graduate uh, alumni association meetings or whatever, and somebody asked about drugs, and they said, well, we haven't had any problem for quite a while, but alcohol is beginning to be a problem again. <laughs> <laughs> so at my college campus, that was the attitude. Yeah, of course, <laughs> yeah, uh, the college. Well, I want to I go... We'll talk more in the future, to be sure, I, I hope. One of the questions that I get asked the most is, how can I talk to my physician about, about cannabis? You know, I'm interested in it. I, I don't want to take pills, whatever, whatever the function is, whether it's, you know, somebody who's looking for pain treatment or insomnia or um, nausea, whatever your condition is, what's a good way for people to start that dialogue with their, with their physician? Do you need to come with peer-sighted articles, you know, you're obviously nervous about, about stigma maybe. Um, is there a way that you can tell if your doctor is, or already, you know, might be inclined? Um, you know, there are a few people I can point out that I, I know are doctors, they don't advertise it publicly, but have signed more than a few cards. And I know in Vermont, naturopaths are allowed to, which I think is, is excellent as people who deal with, you know, herbs and, and natural medicine. But kind of, what are some tips for people to start that dialogue with, you know, someone who might be their primary care physician and they're on the PTA with? Yeah, it's very difficult. Um, basically, we have this limbic system in our brain, which protects you from forbidden thoughts. And it's kind of what the apple did when Eve and Adam ate it. Um, and so it's not subject to rational analysis. Mm -hmm. And so if your physician says, no, that's bad, uh, you know, I won't sign any papers or whatever, you need another doctor uh, to get that signed, because he's not going to change, and a peer-reviewed article, he or she isn't going to, and peer-reviewed articles aren't going to help. Uh, I would suggest being very gentle with the doctor and saying, look, you know, I got a lot of pain, you know, I know you're giving me lots of good medicine for that, but I got a lot of pain still, and either say, I have tried cannabis and it helped a lot, uh, which is be the ideal way of going mm -hmm. in there because if you haven't tried it, it may not help. But uh, right. if uh, if you have and you can say you know it's helped a lot and you know uh, it's for one of those conditions for which the state allows the mm -hmm. uh, filling out of the paperwork, and the doctor also needs to be reassured he doesn't need to recommend it, and so right. not looking for a recommendation, you're just looking for a signature. This is my diagnosis, and I am you know your doctor. Right. And that's all, in Vermont, that's all you have to do. You right. don't have to say you think this is valid medicine or you think it's valid for this patient. And that's a very important distinction because people think that a doctor prescribes it like you do with other drugs, and Absolute, that's not the case. Yeah, absolutely not. And in Vermont, uh, and I think that's one of the states that's enacting medical marijuana this way also, but most of them, you need a recommendation from a doctor. And people have gone to Colorado and gone from doctor to doctor to doctor to find somebody who will recommend it for their kid. Uh, and these folks who first uh, got Charlotte's on Sanjay, Gupta, yeah, stuff, Sanjay yeah. Gupta's uh, people had to look around for a while, before, they, especially before you could find a pediatrician right. who would say, yes, this may be okay. Yeah. Um, so it's very nice in Vermont. The doctor doesn't have to commit at all. In fact, they can write on the form that I tried for two hours to argue this guy out and tell him it's not a good thing to mm -hmm. do, but this is his diagnosis and I am his doctor. So, and now it's three months that they have to have a relationship. Right. Um, but some doctors aren't ever going to sign it. And yeah. some doctors are going to sign it, but not for five years until they kind of get more used to the idea. Right. Um, because people believe uh, that it's bad, and that's what they've always been taught, trained. It's like the police believe it's bad, alcohol is not so bad as long as it's 0.08 mm -hmm. or less. Sure. Um, but actually, 0.08 is about four times as likely to get an accident as zero and but they've been trained that that's okay point zero seven nine is okay and they've been trained that any cannabis is bad so right that's what they testify 
uh, but they don't happen to be correct. Yeah, but that is such an important distinction with Vermont, like you said, that your doctor can hate this, you know, and, and be against it. And you can say, you as a patient can say, look, this is something I would like to try. Mm -hmm. All you need to do is affirm that I have chronic pain or one of the one of the qualifying conditions, you know, and say, this will not, you're not prescribing this, you're not recommending this, but you as my physician, all you need to do is affirm that I have this and I'd like to try it. Yeah, and physicians all the time are filling out slips that say, this is my patient, this is what I'm seeing him for, and I'd like to be paid. Right. Um, this is the same thing, except that it's for the patient so that they don't have to go to jail. Right. And I don't think doctors fully understand how insignificant um, what they're doing is. And I had originally suggested to the legislature they just get a copy of the office note, hmm. which... Uh, it's even easier. Which the patient should be able to get a copy of their office note. But that has a lot of other information that's not necessary, so the legislature set it up that you get this scrubbed clean form. You either have these diagnoses or you don't, mm -hmm. and uh, you have a doctor uh, relationship or not. The naturopaths, uh, I hope you uh, find out more from them, but I understood that they had to pass a, a, a pharmacology test first, so it wouldn't be every naturopath. Right, you have to be an ND. Yeah, in ND, but I think you may also need to have a special add-on certificate. Okay. Well, that would, I mean, that would be good. That's how Not you, for should cannabis. Have, you should have a pharmacology. Yeah. But yeah. Yeah. But I mean, it's because they also would like to prescribe you know, opiates and other things. Sure. Um, and I'm not sure exactly where the law, I, I'm just not, mm -hmm. that's one to check out uh, yeah. separately. But yeah, I think that, and some groups of doctors are more alarmed than others. Uh, pediatricians are, are a group that are uh, totally opposed. And it's a little odd because it, it's clear that the current status, the kids can get it. And one of the reasons Jenny Lyons first supported medical marijuana is one of her uh, people came to her and said, look, I have to get my grandson to go out and buy me pot for my husband who's dying of liver cancer. And, you know, I think you ought to have a, a legal way for him to be able to get that rather than having a grandson go to school and get it. Because right. it's just a lot How easier for kids. Is that? Yeah. I'd have no idea who to call to find out. Right. If a, I get uh, messages on Facebook from especially older folks who are like, how, how do I get this? Yeah, which corner do I go stand on? Right, yeah, exactly. <laughs> and, you know, I've talked, to, I've talked to other patients from other states who same thing, same thing. You know, if they're not people who were not necessarily inclined, they got the card, they got the recommendation, they said, okay, now what? Yeah. You know, who, who do I call, where do I go? And that's where, you know, the dispensaries can offer some help, and I hope that, and we uh, talked before, I hope that eventually the patients can do enough communicating with uh, sufficiently defined chemotypes mm -hmm. uh, of cannabis uh, so that uh, they can share the information. This has really worked well for my chronic back pain. Uh, this has worked well for my insomnia. Mm -hmm. This works really well for my anxiety and doesn't you know, mess up my thinking. Um, and that's sort of way, but again, you have to have a regulated product right. where you know what's in it. And for the pediatricians, they don't want kids using it. And I totally agree with them. You know, I would like kids not to smoke cigarettes, drink alcohol, or use cannabis, crack, crack cocaine, whatever. Um, the, the problem is the kids are using it and, uh, do have access and they have access to unregulated stuff and we don't know what it is. Right. And uh, to me... Now your growing it, lungs are getting filled up with mold and fungus because you're doing regular teenage stuff, but you're in an underground setting and, you know... Yeah, I don't, I don't know what the teenagers are getting. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> but they are getting it, and uh, it's true that legalization, uh, after legalization, they could still conceivably get it. I don't think that the state, if it legalizes it in a controlled and regulated fashion, so that you know, there's no advertising and it's like going into a liquor store, kids don't go in there. I don't think that it's going to give the impression to kids that they uh, are now authorized to use it. Mm -hmm. um, I, it that, that's the argument that they had for medical marijuana. If you call it uh, medical marijuana, then kids are going to want to uh, think it's safe. And it turns out that Which is crazy because I've never seen, I've never talked to a kid or a teenager who thought a prescription bottle was Meant, Safe. meant safety, <laughs> you know, I mean, yeah, you have a cartoon character on the outside versus you have something in a, in a medical container, you know. 
Yeah, no, kids, uh, kids aren't uh, as uh, ungifted as their parents think they are. And uh, they'll, you know, continue to make judgments based on what their parents have to say and what uh, their colleagues can tell them. And if, uh, you know, the parents tell them things that are wrong or if the pediatrician tells them things that are wrong, they just won't trust that source right. of information. That seems like the biggest failure in our, in our drug education system now is that you have people telling you the sky is green you know, and telling you and telling you that, and you look up and see the sky is blue, yeah. then that person no longer has credibility, whether it's a teacher or, you know, any authority figure. Parents, parents you know, particularly. Right. Parents really shouldn't give up, um, you know, the, the trust of their kids if they can avoid that. So saying stuff that happens to be incorrect doesn't help, but legalizing it would mean that it was, they would get their uh, stuff from an older brother or... Right. Some guy who was willing to buy it for them uh, was over 21, and there's no chance that they'll come by and say, hey, look, i got a couple of Oxycontin, too. You want to try one? Right, right, yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So the only people who are opposed to regulating are the drug dealers and the, and, uh, you know, the pediatricians and the... And not all pediatricians. <laughs> right, right. But, uh, you know, the Project Sam people and the drug dealers are the people who are opposed to legalizing it and regulating it because legalized, regulated... Uh, stuff puts the drug dealers out of business. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I don't know why the Project Sam people are. are well, these are people who don't want to. They don't want to be on that side of the table with those with those same people. You know, they don't want to be agreeing with the drug dealers. But that's that's where they're at. That's where because the, that's of this attitude. And, and it's not a matter that anybody wants. Well, I'm sure some people would like to have it freely available to everybody. Right. Yes. <laughs> All the time. Yeah. Yes. Um, I, I talked to a lot of those people as well. I was, I was at the Libertarian event last night. Oh yes. You know. So. Um, yeah. I, I stopped in for 10 minutes, but the parking lot was really full. I got there really late, and I decided I better, I don't like the questions. I mean, the questions were fine, but I wasn't really interested in those questions. Yeah. I had to get out before the rush. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. It was, it, was, it was interesting. It was, you know, those libertarian events are always a good throwback yeah. to participatory democracy. And, yeah. you know. Well, as, you, as I went in, there was uh, the Make America Sane Again sign. Yes, yes. And I happened to have on my T-shirt underneath my other shirt. Uh, that was from the 2010 uh, make, uh, uh, Gathering for Sanity or whatever that uh, oh, John, yeah, the John Stewart and Colbert put right, on. <laughs> right, right. And uh, so I'd gone down for that, and I had my little T-shirt on, and that, that was what, the, they're still talking about the same topic. Basically. Oh, yeah, yeah, well, We have crazy government, and it's just crazy. That's, I think, Gary Johnson's best line was that politics is so crazy in 2016 that I'm going to be elected the next president. <laughs> and he's at least half right, you know. <laughs> But, yeah, no, um, absolutely. Well, I want to, for you know, we'll definitely come back and, and talk a, a lot more, but I appreciate sharing some of this advice, learning a little bit more about kind of your background and the context. And, you know, I know that we want to get questions from, from folks who might have more specific topics. We know you're not here to give medical advice and would not cross that line, but even just other discussion points in the future, love to love to speak with you, uh, speak with you again. So sure. wonderful. Glad to disabuse bad notions. That's well, that's what science is supposed to be about and appreciate your, uh, your commitment. So thank you very much. All right, so there it is, episode five, the Vermont Awana podcast. Thank you again, Dr. McSherry. I uh, hope you guys all enjoyed that. I wanna give one more plug to any and all college students out there, especially if you're anywhere within the confines of Vermont, uh, but also those of you out there in Massachusetts. We're looking for student ambassadors. We're looking for student writers. It could potentially be a paid gig. It could potentially be an academic internship. Um, but if you're interested in the subject, if your background maybe includes some digital media, um, if you're doing some journalism and some writing, if you're interested in policy, if you're interested in hemp, if you're interested in business and entrepreneurship, um, get in touch. Get in touch. Eli, E-L-I, at HeddyVermont.com. So between the Facebook, the other, other, all the other social media channels, uh, the website, there's no excuse. If you, so if you're a student, you're listening to this, you've made it this far, or you know some students who are in college, maybe they're in Burlington, maybe they're in Middlebury, maybe they're in Johnson or Lindenville, maybe they're in Boston, Massachusetts, or Portland, Maine, or Orono. Shout out to you, Maine, Black Bears. Um, get in touch with us, Eli at HeddyVermont.com. So again, thank you to uh, Hedy Vermont, the sponsors. Shout out and thank you again to Dr. McSherry. We will see you guys soon. The Vermont Awana podcast, episode six, episode five in the books. As always, remember, 
Elevate the state, y'all.